You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. For 2,000 years or so, the church has formally commemorated uh, this morning by saying, as follows. He is risen. risen That's the whole reason we do this every Sunday and specifically this Sunday that Jesus is alive. That confession, that statement, that truth is the thing that changes everything. Without that thing, there is no thing. And so we confess, we celebrate, commemorate, and contemplate that Jesus is alive. And if he's alive, then he must be king. It only follows. It only makes good sense. And if he is king, then he is worthy to be praised. And so that's what we're doing here. So I want to issue a very sincere welcome and good morning to you this morning. We're delighted that you have chosen to be with us this morning to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But we also believe that as you have chosen to be here at the 9 o'clock service, that God and his sovereignty and his grace has divinely directed your steps to be here, which means he has a purpose and a plan that you would experience his presence and his purpose and his peace. Because I don't know if you fully recognize it or not. I know that I can't fully appreciate this reality that that the Lord God, by his spirit, is present. He is here. So I want to welcome you and set expectations accordingly. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor the downtown campus. I'm so thankful for Matt McGill and his wife Megan and this other team of worship leaders who led us to the throne without obscuring the view. That's the idea, that we would respond to who God is, to what he has done, and therefore who we are. And so I want to let you know a few things that are going on in the life of our church as we continue together to worship. Number one, if you are visiting with us this morning, this is your first or second or third time and you're not a member, we are so honored and delighted that you're here. And we really do mean that. We want to make sure that we create an environment in which you are able to connect with God's people, with God's spirit. And so we would love to know that you were here. If you will notice in the seat back pocket in front of you, there is a five by seven card. If you would take one of those, Uh, This is the time to do that. Grab one of those cards, pull it out, write your contact information on there and how we can get in touch with you. And then you can just put it in that folder between the exit doors on your way out. Or you can take it to the welcome table. One of our volunteers will be there. We'd love to get you signed up for our e-newsletter, let you know what's going on in the life of the church. But we are We would love to know that you were here and to help you get connected into this body of believers. And secondly, uh, a week from today, we will be having our baptism service. If you have never participated in believer's baptism by immersion, we would love to invite you to be a part of that. It's next Sunday, so you can plan on having family or friends or whatever here. Uh, If you've been perhaps just, I don't know, a believer for a long time, but you've never been baptized, or perhaps you were sprinkled as an infant, and you would like to talk with us about what does believer's baptism mean? We believe from Colossians 2 and other teachings that it signifies the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, and how we appropriate that into our lives. That's what baptism is. It essentially is It's your funeral in public, and we get to be reminding you as the covenant community that, hey, that old you has died. The new has come. 
And you get to do that in public as witness and encouragement to the covenant community. And so if you've never done that, I'm going to ask you to take a next step, and that's to come and speak with me or any of our staff or any of our elders and sign up for Believer's Baptism. Secondly, in a week and a half on May 3rd, that's a Wednesday, we'll be having Discover Bethel. That is our new members or prospective members class where we just tell you, hey, here are the things that we believe. Here's our doctrinal essentials. Here's how the church is organized. Here's how we're uh, operating and how we, how we run. And it's a great time to have dinner together in this very room on Wednesday night from 6 to 8.30. You get to hear from the staff and from a bunch of other mo- uh, volunteer ministry leaders and just see kind of how the church executes our vision, our mission, our direction. It's a great time. It's one of my favorite things that we do every quarter. We have dinner together, and we just talk about the church. And so if you have been to Discover Bethel, but it's been many, many years, man, I want to invite you to come back. It's always a great refresher to think, oh, man, that's right. This is my church, and this is, this is what we're doing, and I'm so glad I get to be a part of it. Well, here's what I'm like going to do now. I'm going to read our passage for the morning, and then I'm going to pray And then we're going to continue to unpack this a bit and see what the Lord has for us this morning. So our passage this morning is from Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. Paul writes this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also... When we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. This is what God says. So let's pray together. Father, would you continue to move by your spirit among your people? And would you add illumination and understanding to your word? Please, God, we need your help. Speak for your servants are listening. Father, I pray if there is anyone here this morning who does not know you, that you will use this time to soften that heart, to open that mind to the truth that Jesus is alive. May it be exactly as I have prayed even better. Pray all these things, Father, the only way I can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, for most of you, I know, and most of you are familiar with my family, I have two teenaged boys. I never thought for a nanosecond that God would permit me to live on this earth long enough to have teenaged sons, but yet here I am, being the chief knuckle-dragger of all the human race, I now have been allowed to procreate, and I have two children. And these two boys, by God's grace, have made it into their teenage years. Unbelievably so. And they have made it to this sort of season in life, which has been really amazing, really special for my wife Susan and I. Now they are at an age to where when we leave home, for starters, we don't got to drop 30 bucks an hour for some babysitter who's texting the whole time. No, we just leave them alone at home, and it's great. So it's affordable. That's really great news. But we don't give them instructions. We, we, we give them identity. We simply remind them who they are. We don't have to tell them, hey, remember to do this, 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 this. When a situation comes up, we want you to stop, think, and do what's right. 
to do what's wise. And if once you've thought it through, you discern that the wise thing, what the wise thing is, then our answer is yes. And so you have complete freedom. Can you play games together? Can you raid the fridge? If we, whatever is the wise thing for you to do, the answer is already yes. And so we sort of unleashed them. Now, the first couple times we did that, we came back and there was, you know, there was lasagna in the ceiling fan. There, it, was, it was crazy. So maybe we jumped the gun a little bit. But now they have freedom. We don't leave them a whole list of rules and regulations and restrictions. We tell them, boy, don't forget your last name. I'll take you off this planet. Or we say it something like that, maybe a little bit sweeter. But we'll say, hey, don't forget who you are and whose you are. You have all the freedom. You make the wise choice. And the answer is always yes. Now imagine how foolish and disappointing it would be if they said, you know what, we don't want to have to to, to, to live like that. We just want you to text us a whole bunch of rules and do's and don'ts, things we can and cannot do, how we're supposed to think, how we're supposed to feel. We want you to treat us like toddlers again. Man, I, I guess I would do it, but what a shame. What, what freedom they would miss out on. Well, here's what I've come to know as I've spoken with people across our community and even our culture over the last several years is that over the last hundred years or so, Christianity in the West has sort of morphed into this weird thing that it's all about do's and don'ts. It's all about rules, regulations, and restrictions. And most people, both in and out of the church, just assume that it's about rules and trying harder to do more to be better. But that notion is absolutely foreign to our Bible, the very word of God is never focused on telling us what to do, how to behave ourselves. Scripture is consistently and continuously telling us who we are. The call and the charge and the challenge of Scripture is to simply be. That's what we're invited into being, not to try to do a whole bunch of this, that, or the other. Scripture's calling us to be what we were created to be. The problem, of course, is that we simply cannot do it on our own because we are impacted and stained and soaked in sin. So we have this tension. We have this sort of this hard thing where we can't quite do the things that we want to do and the things that we want to do we don't do. But what if it was possible for people to really and truly and actually want the same things that God wants? What if it was possible for people's default choices to be the choices that God wants them to make? I mean, just imagine that for a moment. What would it be like if what I should do was the exact same thing as what I wanted to do? Can you imagine? If what you ought to do and what you want to do are exactly the same thing. See, this is the glory of the story of Easter. It's Resurrection Sunday. And Jesus has done it, precisely answering the question of what if he has. And so our big idea for this Easter morning, for this Resurrection Sunday morning, what I hope we all walk out of here with, somewhat or significantly changed, is that Jesus is alive, and we are free to be. Jesus is alive, and we are free to be to not come to God's word, not come to God's people, not come to, to a gathering of worship and think, well, they're just going to tell me how to do a whole bunch of stuff better than I'm doing it now. Oh, no, 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 no. 
Jesus is alive, and we are free to be. This whole semester of the spring of 2017, we have been in the book of Galatians. It will end up being, Lord willing, a 20-week series. This is week 13, so we've made it past the midway mark. We are in chapter 4 of Galatians, and we're not switching texts for Easter Sunday morning because it is a perfect passage for Easter. The overarching theme of the book of Galatians is Christian liberty. We've said over and over again, don't be fooled by any other gospel because there is no other gospel. Any other message that says you have to go and try to do, stop. That's not the gospel. That's bad news. That's not good news at all. Don't be fooled. There are all sorts of competing messages out there fueled by our enemy and by the culture that say this is what you have to go and do. Start over. Don't be fooled by any other gospel. The gospel, the great story, the awesome announcement, the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem man to himself and to one another. So how does a person really appropriate, take in, and then live in light of the gospel? Well, again, our big idea, Jesus is alive, and we are free to be. So here's what I would like to do. I want to unpack this passage verse by verse and see if we can get some extra illumination and understanding here, and then we'll, uh, we'll have some points of, of consideration there at the end. Paul says, I mean that the air. Now, the air he's talking about was all from chapter 3 saying that we are not merely children, we are not merely sons, we are heirs. We are, as it were, uh, princes and princesses of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's what he's been talking about in chapter 3, and so here in chapter 4, the heir, the one who is to inherit all of the glory, all of the majesty, all of the, the, the wonder of the realm. That's what we are. But, he says there in verse 1, as long as he is a child, as long as he is young, immature, unready, well, he's no different from a slave. How do you measure the value of a slave? A slave is only as valued as the work he or she can produce. And functionally, even though an heir is uh, the master of everything and owns everything, in function, he's no different than a slave because you measure it by what it can produce, how much good it can do. Paul says that's what we have to look forward to, just what we can produce. We are merely children. The word child here is nepios. It's where we get our word for nepotism. You're you're in the family, but you're not really a contributing member of the family. You eat the groceries, you make the mess, and that's pretty much it. Until such time. Though he is the owner of everything, he's really no different than a slave, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. I remember vividly some 30 years ago now, there was a movie called The Last Emperor. Maybe you've seen it. It's a great, great movie. This little guy, his name was Puyi. It's a great, great, great movie. And the story of the last emperor of China, this little Puyi, he's a child, and yet he is the emperor but clearly he lacks the maturity and the, the equipping and the readiness to be the emperor of China. And so he is managed by all of these rules, all these strictures, all these guardians and administrators and governors and teachers and tutors and people. Even though he's the emperor, he is not ready. He has not been unleashed and released to be 
who he actually is. He's the master of everything, but he had to be under all of that tutelage, all of that direction. Paul says that's kind of like how we are. And in verse 2, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by us farther. There are rules, rules, and more rules. And those rules are administered and managed by other people. That's what life is like when we come into this world. There's a necessary restriction and a hampering because a child comes into this world. You know this. You've seen this. Fallen, rebellious, depraved, and immature. And they are in need of instruction and discipline. But at a specific time, the father determines a change in identity is to take place. The heir steps into his full identity and is no longer constrained by administrators or managers or rules, rules, and more rules. And Paul's using a, an example, an illustration from the Roman world, but this was very, very familiar to a Jewish household as well. In a Jewish household, it's true even to this day, a Jewish father will not refer to his male offspring as a son. He's simply a child. He is a child because he is responsible for the discipline, instruction, rearing, and training of that child. But he is not a son. He is a child. But at just the right time in the Jewish culture, there is a predetermined age. And the first Sabbath after that boy's 12th birthday, they will have a bar mitzvah, at which time that boy transitions from being a child of his dad to a son of the law. He is now responsible to it. And the, the father has to agree. Now I have seen in my son a person who can live without me having to tell him what to do because he himself is a son of the law. And so in every bar mitzvah, the father will pray this. Blessed be God who has released me from being punishable for this boy. <laughs> this boy is now responsible to God. This boy is now a son who now has the equipping and the training and the freedom to stop, think, and do what's wise. And this is what Paul's telling the Galatians, and by extension us, 2,000 years later, that God has pronounced us sons and heirs, not merely children. We are his. We are responsible to God. It is not about following some code of conduct. Oh, no, no, no. We get to be free because Jesus is alive. Well, verse 3 says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Proverbs 14 and 16 says, there is a way that seems right unto a man, and that path leads to death. There are elementary principles of the world that enslave us. This word elementary principles is really hard. Paul uses it only. It's stoicheia. It could mean sort of the, uh, the elements of the earth, like earth, wind, and fire. It could mean... Uh, angelic spirits that tell us, but it, the idea is it's sort of the, the common sense of the culture. That's the elementary principles of the world, the common sense of the culture, and all of us enter into our world enslaved to those things. The ABCs of our culture enslave us as we come into this world. I don't know what enslaves you. If it, maybe it's, it's acceptance and recognition and so you live your life, you architect your day-by-day your -day life so that you can put yourself in a circumstance, in a context where people will notice and appreciate you. Hmm. Maybe you are enslaved to, to success, and so you will do anything, step on anybody to achieve success because that, in your estimation, is what it means to really be alive, is to achieve success. 
And all of us at some way enter into our lives enslaved to some elementary worldly principle. We are bound under an in capacity to choose things or do things that honor God the Father. We lack the freedom if we only ever try to use common sense. But what Paul is going to tell us here is that we move from being trapped under the ABCs of our culture to being identified as in, not the ABCs, oh no, but the Alpha and the Omega. What Jesus calls himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first, I am the last, I am the essence of all. I created all things by me were they created. I hold the cosmos together and we are found not in the ABCs, but in the Alpha and the Omega. This is the good news of the gospel. Well, the whole payoff, the the what that God does at Easter is showing up in verse four for us. This is an absolutely massive, massive verse. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. When the fullness of time, now there are two words for time in the New Testament. There is the obvious word, chronos, which is the duration of moments. And then there is kairos. Kairos is more like a season or an age. Chronos measures the length of time. Kairos measures sort of the meaning of time. Chronos measures the existence of time. Kairos measures the essence of time. And Paul says here, in the fullness of chronos, at just in time, at just the exact moment in human history, the chronos ticked all the way up to the age of the gospel, and then it started the age of kairos. Why was it just the right time? Why was that the time that God sent his son? Well, we don't know for sure exactly in the mind of God. But we can look at scripture, we can look at history and discern that there was a lot going on that it was the right time from God's vantage point to send his son. It was 483 years after Israel had returned from exile in Babylon, as was prophesied by the prophet Daniel. They were to have been back 483 years and then God would send the Messiah. And 483 years had passed since Israel had returned from Babylon. There's virtually no idolatry in Israel at this time. They are finally purged from their idolatry because of the exile in Babylon. They come back, and though they are stubborn, hard-hearted, stiff-necked, and rebellious, they are not at least idolatrous. And they begin to put synagogues all over the known Roman world so that monotheism, The belief in a single God is now a normative, expected means of faith throughout the whole of the Roman Empire. The Old Testament has been completed. The closure of the Old Testament canon is full. There is so much scripture now available at this time pointing people towards the Messiah. It was the right time culturally. Rome had won the war militarily, but they had been conquered culturally by Greece. And so Greece is the universal language of the empire in the economy, in literature, in art, and in everyday dialogue. It's Greek. And so there's a common language, essentially, throughout the whole of the Roman world. All of the barriers to understanding have been removed. There's no other language like Koine Greek for communicating the richness of what God wanted to convey. And so we see it's the right time culturally. It's the right time politically. There was what the Romans had accomplished, the Pax Romana. Everything was finally subdued. They had conquered all of their enemies at that point, and they had produced, accordingly, incredible infrastructure. 
There were roads all over the known world. And so an apostle of the church could move from Persia to Spain with relative ease. The infrastructure was in place. It was the right time biblically. The culmination of all of the promises of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 says, But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. And the first thing that we see in the book of Acts is there are healings, and there are people who recognize Messiah, and they go out and they leap like calves released from the stall as they are healed. It's the right time. All of that which had been expected and anticipated in the Old Testament, that's the time into which God sends his son. See, God has always been ascending God. Jesus himself tells a parable in Matthew chapter 21 where there is a wealthy vineyard owner. And he rents that vineyard out and he wants to go and check on the people who are renting his vineyard. So he sends some servants. And the people who are renting the vineyard treat those servants badly, beat them up and send them away. So he sends more servants to speak on behalf of the owner. And they treat those servants badly, beat them up and send them away. And finally the, the vineyard owner says, I will send my own son. And we read that with horror because we know what's going to happen. They're going to kill that son. And Jesus is telling us that I have been sent by my father. God did this because he loves people, even people who are rebellious and who don't love him back. That's the essence of John 3.16. And so what we'll say is that God so loved the world. What does it mean to love someone? Well, to love someone is to move your life toward them. To love someone is to move your life toward them. God moved his life toward us by sending his son. Now what Paul's doing here is very subtle but very significant. When he says God sent his son, he does not mean that Jesus came into being and then left heaven now, when he says God sent his son, it demands necessarily that Jesus was pre-existing. He has always existed. There has never been a time when Jesus, the second member of the Godhead Trinity, did not exist. But at just the right time and just in time, God sent his son to be born of a woman. He is God, but at just the right time, he is born of a woman because he becomes human. This is the glory and the majesty of the incarnation. Jesus had to be God fully so that he could be Savior, but he had to be human fully so that he could also be substitute. This is the great miracle of the incarnation and the resurrection. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, the first miracle is that God became man. The second, that a virgin was a mother. And the third, that a human heart should believe this. Which begs the question, do we believe this? He was born of a woman so that he might redeem us who were born of women. Or to put it this way, the son of God became the son of man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. This is the story of Galatians 4. This is the story of Easter. It's a universal truth of human existence and God himself experienced it, being born under a law, born under a woman so that he could enter into our circumstance and accomplish something. He was born under the law living exclusively under the law. It's a burden filled with restrictions and requirements and rules and regulations, and Jesus did it perfectly, his entire earthly life, all of it. Christ kept the law perfectly, and then he took our punishment for breaking his perfect law. He became the burden that I could never escape, and so the Father sent him to live and die under the law in our place so that we would have to do neither. 
Now, why would God send his son just in time? Verse four is the what, verse five is the why, the how come. So verse five, he did this, God sent his son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is the why. Paul says this verb to, to redeem, but it's an it's a okay translation. Paul is the only New Testament writer that'll use this word, to redeem us. Now, the normal usage of the word redeem is agorazo. Agora is the Greek word for market, and so you would go to the market and you would agorazo, you would buy something, but Paul does something unique. He adds a prefix on us. This is exagorazo. God sent his son to exagorazo. Every time that word is used, there's only four times, it is to buy back from wastedness and futility and uselessness. He says it in Ephesians and Colossians to exagorazo, to, to buy back the wasted time, the futile, wasted moments. And in Galatians 3.13, Paul says, Christ became a curse to redeem us from the curse of the law, to, to buy us back out of the curse of the law. And again, here in Galatians 4, 5, God sent his son to buy us back. This word is intensely emotional for Paul, and it is for me. Because Paul knew what it was to be in the market, to, to see things in the market. I've had the opportunity to travel and to see some ancient ruins in places like Ephesus and in Israel. And when you see the Agora, in Rome it's the Forum. It's the community center. It's the mall and the square and city hall and everything. It all happens right there. And so I read this word ex agorazo and it just gets all over me. Because I can imagine myself walking through this massive market and all the hustle and bustle of humanity all the sights, all the sounds, all the smells, all the vendors with their booths, all of the little kiosks and stands where they're selling their, their fruits and their vegetables and their grains and they're selling their trinkets and the, the salesmen and the vendors all come out and they're yelling at you as you walk through the market and you're smelling some of the food that's cooking and you're smelling some of the incense that's burning, some of the spices, you're smelling all this, you're seeing all this, you're hearing all the conversation, all the chatter and the clatter of all the commerce that's happening. And then finally, as you walk through this market, you come to the portion of the market that it's always there in antiquity. It's always there. It's the, it's the flesh market where they sell human beings, where they sell slaves. And it's usually sort of at the back of the market. And you can, if you have the means, you can go and buy a slave for virtually any purpose find some big strong ones, maybe they'll fight for you in the arena. Find some less strong ones, maybe they'll work for you in your home, or maybe you'll find some that will serve less noble, very vile, inhumane purposes. And I imagine as I'm walking through, and the light's a little bit less bright here, it's dim, and as I'm walking through and I'm seeing all of these slaves captured in foreign wars, those who put themselves in slavery because they could not pay their debts in Rome or wherever, and as I'm walking and I'm seeing these faces of shame and pain and anguish and suffering and humiliation, and they're filthy, and there, there's my two sons, and they stand there chained, and they see me, and they avert their eyes because they're ashamed and they know that it's their own rebellion and unwise choices that have gotten them there. And I see them. And my heart absolutely shatters. And so what do I do? I wag my finger and I say, now you should have listened to me. You should have done this, that, and the other. No, of course not. 
I love them. I move my life toward them, you see. They're mine. Oh, don't you see? They're mine. What wouldn't I pay to rescue those two boys who are mine out of the filth and the shame and the humiliation and the hunger and the fear and the wastedness and the uselessness? What wouldn't I pay? Anything and everything. And this is Galatians 4, 5. God himself moves his life toward us to buy back. And what is the cost? What is the price? He will pay with the life of his one and only true heir. That one will have to die so that he can buy back all of us. That's the astonishing story of Easter. This is what the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplished. God moved his life toward us, purchased for himself heirs, us. But he didn't just buy us out of the market. The scripture says that he made us heirs. He takes us out of the market, out of uselessness and, and, and futility and filth, and he washes us inside and out. But wait, there's more. He takes us into his own home. But wait, there's more. He gives us the corner bedroom, you know, the big one with the California king bed. Oh, yeah, that one. Ensuite bath, the whole bit. But wait, there's more. He adorns us with all of the trappings of royalty. He says, you were in the market wasting away in uselessness, but I have paid the price. I have bought you back. I have made you my heirs. That's what it means. Not just rescued us from hell, but to the status of heirs of his kingdom, to elevate fallen humanity. That's why we study this at Easter. As Tim Keller has said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the receipt that says, paid in full. God says, I will move my life toward these who have rejected me, and I will pay the price. But how do we know that the price was enough? Yes, Jesus died, but how do we know that it accomplished? Because Jesus is alive. And we are free to be. This is the good news. We are the recipients by grace of the full status of the risen Christ. We are in him. We receive his risen life now. Even though we are still grappling with a fallen world and our own sin, we are sons. We are not minors. We are masters because we are in him. We have been adopted. The word is huiasthesia in Greek. We have been given the rights of sons a Roman ear would understand that. It means you have been given the full honor as if you were a biological son. We practice that wonderfully in our culture even today. A man named Thomas Burke put it this way. He said, God's family comprises solely adopted sons and daughters. There are no natural-born sons or daughters in his divine household. All of us are adopted, bought with a price. We are not our own. We have moved, as it were, from being minors to masters. Jesus is alive and we are free to be. But wait, it gets better. And because you are sons, not minors, not nepios, you are huias. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, we are no longer under rules, rules, and more rules. We're not minors to be held at arm's length. The proof that we are sons of God is that we are permanently and eternally indwelled by God's spirit just as Jesus was during his earthly ministry and ever after. Notice that God is a sending God. God sent his son. And here in verse 6, God sent his spirit. The spirit-indwelled life of Jesus Christ is to be a foretaste of what our sinless lives will one day be. Did you know that in his earthly ministry, those three years 
or so. Jesus did nothing in his own power, nothing in his own strength, his entire life. All the signs, all the wonders, all the miracles, all the healings, all the raisings, all of those things were done in the power of God's Holy Spirit, not in Jesus' own power. Why? To show us, that's my plan for you. Imagine a child of God, a son of God, indwelled by God's Spirit, one day completely free from sin, you will do the same things that Jesus did. You won't have to wonder then, well, I wonder if that's okay according to the rules. No. Did Jesus worry about the rules? No. He loved his God, and he was energized and empowered and indwelled by God's Holy Spirit. That's what this means. And the Spirit cries out on our behalf, Abba, Dad, Father, this is completely foreign to a Jewish ear. You would never, as an individual, refer to God as Father, but Jesus takes it another step and says, no, he has moved his life toward us. We can now move our lives toward him. We call him Abba. In Hebrew, the word for Father is Av, and the familiar version is just Ava. Not exactly Daddy or Dada, but it is a term of intimate familiarity. We move our lives toward him because he has moved his life toward us. We are indwelled by his spirit. When does Jesus say, Abba, Father, in his earthly ministry? When he's suffering. And this is the tension that we live in. The spirit of God indwells us and empowers us and intervenes on our behalf. He helps us, he leads us, he guides us, he guards us, he loves us, and he carries our hearts to the Father. He cries out in ways that we don't even understand how to do it, but the Spirit connects us to God the Father. The full weight of the Trinity comes to bear on what God has done for us. We are no longer under the guardianship of the law or rules or regulations as mere children or minors. Instead, we are indwelled by God himself, and that is what and who gives us the desire to do what God wants. And when we mess up, not if, but when we mess up, it's not that we break a whole bunch of rules. It's that we were not paying attention. We were not stopping and thinking and doing what was wise and listening to the God that indwells us. We were rebelling against a person. But that person is gracious and he stands ready to forgive us and to restore us. The penalty and the price to accomplish that forgiveness has already been paid by Jesus. And his being raised from the dead is the proof that God accepts that payment. Jesus is alive, and so I am God's heir. Paul's going to summarize all of these things. We have been made sons in verse 7. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Even more than that, we are given full status as regal princes to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And this has always been God's plan, and we get to live in the midst of that even now. Some 550 years before Jesus, the prophet Daniel writes this, talking about the future. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. See, Jesus is alive, and we are free to be, not merely try to do, but to be who we were created to be, sons of God Most High. And for all eternity... We will be sons of God, ruling as his regents. So let me give three very quick implications for all this, how this comes home to us on Easter Sunday morning. Number one is this. The Son of God secures us. The Spirit of God assures us. This is such good news. 
such a perfect passage for Easter because it is such good news, this awesome announcement, this great, great story. God the Father began the process, and he searched for us. You get the idea of God the Father walking through the market, through the mire and the muck and the mess, and the Father begins the search and rescue mission. God searches for us, and then he sends forth his Son to accomplish what we could not. The Son of God comes and he fulfills the demands of God's moral code of righteousness perfectly. His entire life in every single thought, word, and deed. And then he offers that perfect scorecard signed to us. And we get to turn in that scorecard at the end of our lives as if it was ours. And God accepts it. The Son also pays the wages of sin with his own death on the cross. But would that payment be enough to really pull off my sonship? The resurrection is the guarantee that the Father accepts the payment. And then God secures us with his spirit. Uh, he secures us with the Son. He assures us with his spirit. When it can't get any better, the Father sends his spirit to counsel us, to help us, to seal us, to lead us. The spirit communicates on our behalf. He brings the word alive to us during our times of study and reading. He adds depth and wisdom to our prayer lives. He thickens our understanding of the character of God that we would live like him, that we would be those who walked around this world living our lives as if Jesus was living our lives through us because in a sense, he is. Which leads me to my second point. This is a quote from Augustine. This is what it means to be a Christian. How do we be Christians? We love God and do as we please. <laughs> I confess in some of my more legalistic years in the church this 1,600-year-old quote made me uncomfortable because something inside of me recognized my own tendency to rebellion and depravity, and I assumed that I would go completely off the rails of good behavior unless there were tight rules placed on me and everybody else. But Augustine's words here are a brilliant theological summation and application. Jesus is alive, and so we are free to be he understood what scripture was saying, what Paul was saying to the churches of Galatia. Stop running back to the orphanage, Paul says. Quit going back and simply looking for a code of conduct, for rules, rules, and more rules. You are now indwelled by God's spirit. You don't need rules. You have God himself, the lawgiver. Stop, think, and do what's wise. And if the answer is, yes, this is wise, then you are free. You are unleashed to do whatever it is that you want. You love God. You move your life increasingly toward him because he moves his life increasingly towards us. We are sons of God himself. And so we allow ourselves to love him as he deserves. And because of that love and relationship with a good and glorious person, we move our lives toward him. How can we trust ourselves to do what pleases God? What if I start doing things that only please me? <laughs> But again, he hasn't given us a rule book. He has given us himself. His Holy Spirit indwells every believer and seals them forever. He is with us now, and he is our helper. As my two sons walk around, they know what I like. They know what I want. They know what I expect. They are the walking around ethic and value of our home. The time that I have spent with them in equipping them and pouring into them is the fuel of their walking around lives, but that's finite. They are all also indwelled by God's Holy Spirit, and the time they spend with him fuels their understanding and recognition of wisdom. And so now they can stop and think and say, is this wisdom? If so, then I am free to do it. 
I love my God, and I am unleashed to do as I please, which just so happens to be what pleases God. And then the child of God gets to make the series of wise choices, and my wise choices, one after the other after the other, is precisely God's will. That's what it looks like to be a child, to be a son of God. And speaking of which, third point, sons are sent. Hearkening back to that great parable in Matthew 21 where the son is sent to the vineyard, we know that he's going to go into harm's way. We are supposed to read that parable and be shocked and astonished because we are being called sons of God. And God sends his son. God sent his son. God sent his spirit. And now God sends his sons by the millions all over the globe, all over our communities, all over our homes to be the walking around character and ethic and value of God himself. I don't know what all you encounter in the various spheres of influence in which you operate, but I know this much. If you are a believer indwelled by God's spirit, he desires for you to be an ambassador of his kingdom ethic and value and that you would want what he would want because that's what this world that is dark and dying so desperately needs. Not to be told all of the ways that they mess up and break the rules. This world is so desperate to see people who love God and do as they please, which is what pleases God. So much of this world thinks that church, religion, our faith, our Bible is about rules, regulations, and restrictions. May we have our minds changed, that it is about freedom. Jesus is alive, and so we are free to be. Now, if you're here this morning, you're visiting, and you're not real sure how you got to be here this morning. It's Easter, and you find yourself in a church. You're not a believer. We're going to ask you to let down your defenses for just a moment and to believe. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he lived a perfect life, fulfilling the demands of the law, Every word, thought, and deed, he did it perfectly. And he offers that righteousness to us in addition to paying the wages of sin, which is death, because we could never do either. But he offers them freely. You may be sitting there thinking, yeah, but, but what do I have to do? Wrong question. What has God done? Therefore, whose am I? And therefore, who am I? We invite you to believe when we're done here in just a moment, we're going to have our, some of our elders and staff here available at the front. If you'd like to speak with someone about that, we would love to have a conversation with you. And for the rest of us who have been believers for a very long time, Jesus is alive. And so we are free to be, not shackled and bound to try and do, to, to, to try harder, to be better. That is enslavement. But instead, to, to go around our lives, stop, think, and do what's wise. And the next wise choice we make is precisely and perfectly the will of God, and we are free to live lives of joy. May it be exactly as Paul has said in his letter. Let me pray for you, and then we'll have a word of benediction and stand and be dismissed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this word. We thank you for the resurrection of your son. We thank you that he is risen. Oh, he is risen indeed. And because he is alive, we are not merely minors, we're not even children. We are sons and heirs. We are the dwelling of your spirit in this world. And so may the dark and dying world around us see the greatness of your glory and these walking around living stones of your temple. 
Father, if there is anyone here this morning that does not know you, I do pray that you will move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus, because he is alive. Therefore, he is king, and therefore, he is worthy of our praise. Father, we pray these things the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, God bless you, and happy Easter. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction, and we will be dismissed. Make sure you hug at least one neck and shake at least one hand, even if it's awkward. He is alive. Now, may the God who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, may he equip you for doing every good work and being his sons and daughters. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Happy Easter. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.